Hello, this is Kurt Frankum, and many of you know me as the host of the Leading Saints podcast. But Leading Saints isn't just a podcast. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we strive to create quality leadership content for Latter-day Saints in order to help them be better prepared to lead. With this mission comes a lot of expense, and we need additional help to continue our efforts in the coming year. In order to exchange value for value, we have created the Core Leader Community. To become a core leader, all you have to do is become a subscribing donor, which might be a monthly recurring donation or even a quarterly or yearly donation. For those who become a core leader through a subscription donation, you have access to our core leader library, which includes additional recorded interviews not available to the general audience, access to all virtual summits, discounts on products and conferences, and access to a private CoreCast feed where you will hear additional leadership thought and behind the scenes happenings. We are a community of leaders making this happen, and we need you a part of this mission. Text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to become a core leader today, or visit leadingsaints.org donate. Happy New Year, everyone. This is Kurt Frankum with the Leading Saints podcast, and I'm excited to kick off 2020 with you. And uh, doing that with this episode, this is a great episode to start with. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints and maybe your New Year's resolution is to listen to more fantastic podcasts, well, you're in the right place because Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization where we strive to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And one way we do that is through this podcast. Now, of course, we have a fantastic website. If you haven't checked it out, it's at leadingsaints.org. Thousands of articles all around leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint and uh, so many fantastic contributors and perspectives there to explore and to share. Now, in this episode, we talk with Clint Pulver. Now, if you're not familiar with Clint, you need to be. And if you are familiar with Clint, you probably are really excited to listen to this episode. And believe me, it's everything you expect it to be. Clint always brings his A-game. He's a world-renowned speaker, speaks all across the world to corporations, organizations, talking about retention, engagement, especially with the millennial generation. And uh, there's there's so many topics that one could cover with, with Clint. And we do kind of touch on a variety of, of those. But uh, if you haven't seen the the interview, and I'll link to this in the uh, show notes, but or not the interview, it's a video on YouTube about Clint called Be a Mr. Jensen. It talks about an elementary school teacher he had that really helped him discover his purpose and establish value in him as an individual and solidify his positive identity. So it's a fantastic uh, video, especially if you are a youth leader, to show them that video. It's uh, going to inspire them and, and get them thinking in the right mindset as far as who they are as an individual and what they have to give to the world. So I'm sort of speaking in nuance here because we got to jump into this interview where we talk about or Clint instructs us about how to be an advocate for your people. Uh, really focusing on the worth and potential of individuals and creating moments that's going to impact them, and especially in your relationship of you as their leader. And that's really the focus of this interview is how to develop effective relationships with those you lead so that they want to stay and be led by you. So here is my interview with Clint Pulver. Today, I'm sitting down with Clint Pulver. How are you, Clint? I'm doing awesome. Nice. Now, most Thanks people know you as Elder Kessler. As we, is that uh, right? Yeah. That, yes, that's <laughs> kind of true. Hopefully, that identity is fading because it's been a few years since you did Saturday's Warrior, right? But yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it, it, it is kind of fading. Still, you can't go to, I can't go to Costco. Costco, <laughs> there's still, you know, 
random people that will come up and are you that guy in the yeah. one movie? So, so Cos- is that, Costco is still the place. Is that you where go, when you get that. recognized, it's usually because of Saturday's Warrior? Yeah, yeah. totally. Okay. Yep. Nice. Yep. Saturday's Warrior and then Trek. Trek the movie oh, yeah, Trek, is the other right. one. So. Right. So you're, you're like a famous Latter-day Saint movie star. Right? As far as uh, I they don't get. know about that, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it happens once in a while. Nice. Yeah. So for individuals listening that may not be familiar with you and what you do or your background or what would other than Saturday's Warrior, what would you tell them? Yeah, I travel uh, the world as a professional keynote speaker, uh, working with leadership organizations, different uh, companies, CEOs, executives, and it's all about employee retention. How do we create organizations that people never want to leave? How do you create loyalty, increase engagement? So kind of in the corporate space and then run an organization that's called the Center for Employee Retention. Uh-huh. And uh, it's all about building and creating loyalty. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we're going to get into that because I think, you know, we in our culture, there's sort of like this, this uh, I don't know, forced loyalty is the right word, but it's like, all right, you live in this neighborhood, so you go to this this ward and you're going to like it, okay? Like, yes, <laughs> yes. But obviously there's things... We can sometimes we just take for granted that, well, you're in the ward and you, you'd have to move, you know, your whole family if you want out of the ward. So mm-hmm. you're here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's some things we can do to maybe stimulate loyalty that, that we'll get into. But and you speak to a lot of uh, a lot of youth audiences, right? Millennial yeah. audiences. Yeah, that yeah. Sort of spend a ton of time, about seven years in the, the youth world, speaking to high school students, middle school students. I think they're one of the toughest audiences for any speaker to speak to because mm-hmm. they're honest mm-hmm. and they will tell you what they think. They have no, uh, <laughs> no parameters in making sure that you know that. And so right. you learn really quick as a speaker when speaking to, to young people, how to connect, how to yeah. engage, how to capture their hearts, their minds. And you're competing against the cell phone, right? You're competing mm-hmm. against their other friends in the audience and people they're sitting next to. So it was a great experience for me to learn how to, how to connect with that age group. Yeah. And it, even if they don't tell you, you know, straight up with words, they don't hide their emotions like adults can, you know, put on yeah. the facade and, and hide behind. But I mean, as being the preschool advisor, it's, it's obvious very quickly when that group is not engaged. you lost them. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yep. Whether they're looking at a phone or just sort of staring, yeah. <laughs> staring past you as yes. you talk. Looking right? at their, at their, at their phone and looking at their watch and saying, get me out of here. Yeah, yeah. You can tell they have no problem in letting you know that. Yeah. So I, I think I first heard about you and, and, uh, in, in your name from the, a YouTube video about Mr. Jensen. He was an elementary school teacher of yours. Is that right? Yeah. Maybe yeah. tell us the story about that. I, I'll obviously push people to that video because it's inspiring. But uh, is that sort of where your uh, kind of your, that speaking philosophy started for you as far as what uh, Mr. Jensen did for you? Yeah, for me, I, I never wanted to be a speaker growing up. I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. I wanted to fly. I had an eye disease that ended that whole career. Ended up going to college, right? That's what you do when you have no idea yeah, what you right. want to do with your life. You go to college. Actually, went to Utah Valley University. Loved it. Changed my I life. I went to UVSC. Oh, wonderful. Okay, right, so. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so UVU at the time. And uh, it was an institution that changed my life. It sparked the possibilities for me. And I'll never forget. I was a senior in high school, actually. And I spoke in church. And there was a guy that owned a leadership consulting company that heard me speak. Hmm. And he came up and he said, listen, I thought you did a good job. I want you to come speak at a leadership conference down in St. George to a bunch of other high school kids. <laughs> and I said, absolutely not. I was like, yeah. I have no desire to go do that. I was a high school student. I know what high school students are like. I don't want to do it. Yeah. And he was like, listen, I'll pay you 500 bucks. <laughs> That's like a and I was like, dollars. I was like, um, when do you need me? Yes, yeah. I will do it. Uh-huh. I, I went down and I did this conference. I loved it. It was, it was, a, it was a moment that totally uh, opened that, the reality of like, this is a job. Like people do this. People 
can speak and train. And I felt like I was doing something bigger than myself. And I had six other schools that came up to me after that event. And they said, we want you to come speak at our school. Wow. So that was, again, a moment that opened up this world of the possibilities of what could be. So I kind of preface that to the Mr. Jensen story, because I think that some of the greatest leaders are amazing at designing moments, Mm. single moments in time that they just, because of who they were, because of what they did at the right place at the right time, that just transforms people, that, that builds loyalty, that builds connection. And for me, as a young kid, I was the kid that struggled to sit still. I would sit in class and I would try to focus. And every time I did, I would just move. My right hand would start tapping. My left hand would move. My feet would move. And obviously that's annoying to anybody else that's within the vicinity of <laughs> and you three, didn't notice, three right? feet. No, yeah. I, and half the time I would do it and it was subconsciously, maybe a nervous tick or whatever you want to call it, ADHD. I've never been diagnosed, but I was nicknamed and called the tapper, mm. uh, the twitcher. I was bullied. Even the teachers that were frustrated. I got sent to the principal's office. The principal told me to sit on my hands just don't move, sit on your hands. That worked for about three minutes. My feet would start moving. And it was just this constant problem, this constant issue until one day, uh, one of my teachers, his name was Mr. Jensen, and he told me to stay after class and he wanted to talk. And I remember being nervous and I remember all the other kids going, you know, in the class, ooh, Twitcher's going to (laughs) die. Like you're in trouble. Uh And class dismissed, the bell rang. It was a completely empty room minus Mr. Jensen and myself. And he went to the back of the room. He sat me down and he said, listen, I've been watching you and I know who you are. You're the kid that's on the list, right? You never want to be on the list. I was that kid. You're the kid that's the problem. You're the kid that taps. You do it in my class. You do it in everybody else's class. You're the kid that got sent to the principal's office because you just tap. And he said, but I watch what you do. And every time you're focusing, you're trying to do an assignment or you're listening in class, you'll do something with your right hand. And then literally at the same time, you can do something different with your left hand at a different tempo. Mm-hmm. And he said in big adult words, we call that ambidextrous. Oh, and yeah. I was like, Amble what? I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> and he said, try this. He's like, I got to know, can you tap your head and rub your belly at the same time? And I could do it without even thinking about it. I just, I could, I just could do it. Uh-huh. And he goes, now switch. He said, can you rub your head and tap your belly? And I could do that too. And, and back and forth, I would just move my limbs And he sat back in his chair and he kind of laughed and he looked at me and he said, I don't think you're a problem. I just think you're a drummer. Mm. And that was a a single moment in time that I didn't really understand how important it would be in my life. But he was the person, the first person in my life who became an advocate, not just a developer. Mm. And he did it through creating a moment because in that moment, he leaned back and he opened up the top drawer of his desk and he reached inside. And he pulled out my very first pair of drumsticks, Mm. my very first pair. And he said, listen, I got these for you. Here's the deal. I want you to just keep them in your hands. Keep them in your hands and let's just see what happens. And that was 22 years ago. And I can honestly say from 22 years ago, almost literally to this exact day that I have tried my best to keep my promise to Mr. Jensen. Mm. For 22 years, I've had the opportunity to travel and tour and record all over the world playing drums. I've been on America's Got Talent at Utah Valley University. I started the Green Man Group. Oh, really? Uh, My whole college education was paid for through scholarships, through music and playing drums. And it was a a little thing that transformed everything. It was a moment. And I'm I'm not saying all those things to go, oh, wow, good for you, Clint, or that must mm-hmm. have been amazing. Like I'm saying those things because one person who saw a problem as an opportunity, 
who saw what many would see as a limitation as potential. And in doing so, my life was a better story because of that. And, And the thing that stands out to me about that story is especially in leadership, it's so easy to get focused on the behaviors, right? Like you need, you're not sitting still, you're not behaving as you should in, in class and it's distracting other students. Right. And, and I think in leadership, especially in the church, when obviously there's commandments in place, there's temple recommend questions. And so it's easy to sort of default into this position of behaviors, but to that leader and not the behaviors wasn't important to that teacher, Mr. Jensen, but he stepped back and then he came at you from your heart, right. And said, there's nothing wrong with you. And, And to come at people through their heart is by going to their identity and saying, you know, you're, you're just a drummer. Yeah. You're not a problem. Absolutely. Right? And that's so, that's huge. That's a huge leadership uh, moment that uh, like talking about those moments that really set you on a trajectory that blessed your life. Yeah. I think one of the greatest lessons in leadership is I wish I was told this in, in my leadership early on that every person that you're leading is asking you the question as the leader, let me know when it gets to the part about me. Yeah. And some people hear that and they go, well, those entitled little yeah. prideful, you know, yeah, like you, you want it's all about or, you. Yeah, all about you, but really everybody wants to be seen, heard and understood. And the great leaders know how to do that. And not simply by just giving somebody what they want all the time, but they learn how to connect people to their dreams. Hmm. I remember when I was a little kid, I wanted a drum set and I was 12 years old. So I, Mr. Jensen, this is, you know, I was 10 when that happened. Okay. So this is two years into the story. And I went to my mom and I said, mom, I want a drum set. And my mom was a great developer in my life. She still is. And being a great developer, she said, okay, Clint, I'll I'll make you a deal. You want a drum set. I know what your report card reads. (laughs) And when you change your C's and D's Mm -hmm. on your report card to A's and B's, Mm -hmm. we'll talk drum set. Mm -hmm. Great developer. I'm going to get you from point A to point B to point C. But my dad, my dad heard the, the same conversation. He's in the computer room. I go walking by and my dad goes, Clint, come here, come here, get in here. And I go walk in and he goes, listen, I heard you were talking to your mother. I said, yeah. I said, dad, I want a drum set. And he goes, I know, I know. And in my dad's computer room were all of his old CDs. And he went down to the bottom shelf and he pulled out a CD by the band called Rush. Oh yeah. And he said, son, he's like one of the best <laughs> rock bands of all time. He said, the drummer, his name is Neil Pert. He will change your life. And he said, take it, like listen to it, like uh-huh. learn it. And then he goes, wait. And he pulls uh, from the third shelf, a CD by the band called Def Leppard. And he said, (laughs) son, this drummer, he doesn't have two arms. He's got one arm and he plays the drums. And I'll never forget. He handed me the CD and he said, son, you learn how to play, pour some sugar on me. I'll love you forever. (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of, uh, it's kind of that funny story, right? Of, of advocating versus developing. Yes, there are standards and expectations and, you know, the commandments and the structure and obedience and growth, Mm -hmm. but there's also the heart and connection and the spirit and understanding where a person is at and their place and their intent and their perspective and their dreams. Like what matters to them? Everybody's asking you the question, let me know when it gets to the part about me. Yeah. And when you do that, that's what builds loyalty. Yeah. That's what builds connection. I'll never forget after I got the drumsticks, Kurt, I, Mr. Jensen could ask me to do anything. I, uh, how high do you want me to jump? How, uh-huh. how late do you need me to stay? How much harder do you need me to work? Because he got to the part about me. Yeah. All right. So let's do a hypothetical situation. And you've been an elders corn president before. So you, so you know the, the ropes a little bit. Uh, let's say 
this Sunday, you're called as elders court president. You walk in there with this intent of being an advocate for these brethren that, that, uh, that sit before you, but also wanting to develop them. So what are some of these practices, like just hypothetically speaking, what would they look like if you were in charge of an elders court? Yeah, I think that one of the greatest things that, that we found that great leaders do, and, and my research, we started what's called the Undercover Millennial Program. Mm. So five years ago, it all stemmed from an experience in New York City with a CEO whose perspective was different than the reality of what the employees were experiencing. Mm. So the Undercover Millennial Program, think uh, like Undercover Boss. Uh-huh without the makeup. Okay. <laughs> so we've worked with 181 different organizations and I've gone in undercover and interviewed over 10,000 employees as someone who's looking for a job. So I would walk through the door. I had my backwards hat on, uh, my Nikes, my joggers. I just look like a young, I am a younger person. Yeah, you and have I, a, and have I a go, baby face there. No, thanks. <laughs> um, but I would go in asking for a job and I would just simply ask the employees, what's it like to work here? Uh-huh. What's the management like? I'm I'm thinking about applying, like, is this like a long-term thing for you? Do you, do you like it? And they would tell me everything. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. They don't tell me the good, they tell me the bad. And we've created what, you know, our research in that 10,000 combination of the people that we've interviewed, I feel like it's the most authentic and real data to what great leaders have done to create loyalty. Hmm. Because the magic of all of the research was when an employee would say, undercover when I would ask the question, what's it like to work here? And when they would respond with the, the reply, I love it here. I love my job. Wow. I, I love my man. Susie, you got to meet Susie. Susie, get over here. Like she, and she'd walk over and, and they'd say, take an application. You got to apply. It's an amazing place. There was magic there and how those leaders were creating that type of a response. So that's kind of a little bit of the background okay. to, to me answering some of these questions. We found that, you know, and putting myself in the situation, I was a newly called elders quorum president. I would recommend the power of what I call a status interview. Hmm. I come from the medical field a little bit too, some of my background and status is a pretty frequently used word in that, in that environment. Status for a patient is all predicated upon the body temperature, the blood uh, pressure, your heart rate and your respiratory rate. When they're asking about the status of a patient, those are your vital signs Mm -hmm. that keep you alive. And so when you check a person's vital signs, the vital signs always predict treatment. And then after you treat the patient, then you recheck the vitals. Mm. And you continue that pattern until healthy stability is maintained long-term. And so we found that great leaders in one way, shape, or another were so good at checking the status of their people. Great elders quorum presidents are good at understanding the status of their quorum. Great bishops are great at understanding the status of their ward. Relief Society president, the status of the sisters. And simply, it came down to asking them. I think sometimes in leadership, we get caught up in, I know what you need. I know mm. the direction. This is the vision. This is the mission statement. This is what we stand for. This is my yearly indicated your potential yeah. and your worth. Yeah. I guarantee they were the person that stopped doing a few things in their life to give you time, right? We spell connection, T-I-M-E. Granted, we, we don't spell that well, but that's, that's how we <laughs> spell it, yeah. time. And if we're so busy doing so many things, how do we expect? to connect with people? How do you expect to create loyalty? How do you expect to create faith building members that go, I like myself best when I'm with you? Mm-hmm. You know, instead of this fear-based, I got to go meet with the bishop. No, I get to meet with bishop. Yeah. No, I get to, I get to, I'm excited to go to Relief Society and I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it because it's excited to be a part of me. Yeah. It, it is a connection piece that matters and we can't forget that. That's what gets remembered. Yeah. And when it comes to intangibles, 
like he's talking about, the intangibles are, are sort of the important things, but it's also hard with intangibles to create. Here's your three-step process to get to intangibles. So I love this model as far as focusing on worth and potential because our mutual friend, Rob Farrell, he, he articulates this concept well, which he takes from Dr. Covenant's 10. He talks about that this is the adversary strategy as well. He always comes at us with our lack of potential and our lack of worth. And we come at people with, well, here's 10 things you should be doing. Like, here's the commandments. Here's okay. the way you can do. But so start with worth and potential. And then those intangibles will, will come to the surface. Yeah, right? to contend with the doctrine. That's, That's what right. Rob always says. <laughs> we, he, the, the adversary wants us to contend with the doctrine to make us feel unworthy, yeah. that we're not worth it, that we have no potential. That's why as a leader in this church, you must be that person mm-hmm. because you might be the only person that does. Working with young people, the average, uh, this is Hawthorne Institute that put out this study, that your average high school student, so we're talking ages 16, eh, 15 to to 18 years young, that in one day they will have anywhere from 15,000 to 60,000 thoughts in one day. Some people are listening to this and saying, uh, I have a few kids that only have 12. I know a few uh, (laughs) uh, young men that only have 12 thoughts a day, but on average, 15,000 to 60,000 thoughts. But what they also found out of all of that thinking, that 80% of their thoughts were negative. Hmm. It's like, I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not, I don't sit at the cool table at lunch. I only got 56 likes on my Instagram post, uh-huh. you know, when I usually get 94, like the crazy yeah. thoughts like that. And we laugh at some of those, but if you take 80% of negativity and then you compound that day after day, after day, after day, it lines up exactly with what Rob says to contend with the doctrine, to contend with yourself, to help you to feel unworthy, not worth it. You have no potential. What's the point? And yeah. so, yeah, having a status interview gives you the opportunity to communicate that. Creating a moment gives you the chance to be that advocate. You might be the only person in that young person's life or that old person's life, that adult, that mother, that father, that single person in a young single adult ward where you communicate that opportunity when you become a Mr. Jensen mm-hmm. and it matters to people. It is the difference between mentorship versus management. And we can't forget that advocacy part. We can't forget that you have the chance to become the catalyst where you connect people to Christ. How do you expect to connect anybody to Christ when they can't connect with you yeah. and you don't take time to connect with them? It's That's tough. your role. That's what we do. That's the beauty of leadership. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. Anything else in this realm of as far as advocacy and moments and worth and potential? We, we covered it pretty well. I mean, I'm sure you give hours upon hours of speeches about these things, but. I think something just to highlight is we have to remember that mentorship, when talking about mentorship, when you look at the great people in your life that were mentors, mentorship is always earned. It is different than leadership. Leadership, right? It, it title, it's, it's a position. You're the visionary. Mentorship, you might have a title as a manager, or you might have the calling of bishop, or elders quorum president, or relief society president, or even a, a primary teacher, right? Any, any, any type of leadership opportunity where you get the chance to influence, you have that title, that calling. But your people, the members of the church, will be the ones that will decide if you're the advocate. Mm. They're the ones that will decide if you are the mentor. It must be earned. You look at any great movie, any great story, like a great, there's always the mentor that shows yeah, up. Yeah. Like the Obi-Wan like, Kenobi, right? Totally. Yeah. Right. Like the like Aladdin had the genie. Rocky had Mick. Frodo <laughs> had Gandalf, right? These amazing mentors that came out of nowhere 
but they earned the will of those that chose to follow them. Mm -hmm. And they became the mentor because the mentor was the person that connected the mentee to their dream. Mm -hmm. When we found in our research, there's five characteristics that created a mentor. And I think they're worth just briefly mentioning because again, you must become the person that connects people to their dreams. You have to earn it. And so a mentor became a mentor through their confidence, their competence, their candor, their caring ability, and then their credibility. Wow. So those are the five characteristics to what we found. If anybody earned the title of a mentor, I look back at like some of the greatest bishops that just changed my life. They were those people. And I I always said, I like myself best because I'm with you. And I, how I experience you and how I experience myself when I'm with you is life changing. Yeah. That's funny because actually just this morning I ran, I was at the gym and and, uh, I heard my name and looked over my mission present was on another treadmill. And, you know, we talked for a brief moment and just that, just like being in his presence, like he hit so many of those five, five uh, mentorship things that you just, it brings the best out of me in that moment, you know, being with him. Yes. How people experience you and how they experience themselves when they're with you matters. And you do that through those characteristics. Yeah. Confidence, caring. You got to care about people, being candor, being someone that can speak honestly to, to somebody, your credibility factor, where are you coming from? What's your background? What's your history? And then your competence, you know, do you actually, yeah, you can maybe teach somebody about basketball, but can you get out and actually shoot the hoop? Yeah. Can you play the game? <laughs> I don't know. So there's just really cool attributes that we found, you know, how do I become a mentor? And those are the characteristics we found in every great mentor. Well, that's cool. That's really helpful. So I want to pivot a little bit to this, uh, this undercover millennial project and just discussing millennials in general for those, maybe the YSA bishoprics or the youth leaders out there. Cause you, you speak in front of, of high schools with thousands of, of students looking at you and, and <laughs> on Sundays I, I falter to even speak in front of 10, you know, priests looking at me. Where does your mind go just with approaching the youth of the latter days here as, as far as connecting with them and doing some of these principles you've already talked about? I think the number one thing for me in my experience it, doing firesides, working with the youth, and especially on a, on a church side of things, the number one thing that kids have come up to me after and said, you're not like, oh, I love your stories or I loved how you, you did this, or you made me laugh, or you were funny. The number one thing they talk about is that they, that is a consistent thread that I've tried hard to do, but it's also been recognized by the younger generation, is this is the first time in a long time that I felt the spirit. Mm. And it always hurts my heart a little bit when I hear that, because I think, like, what about seminary? You know, what about, what about preschool? What about beehives? What, what about your home? Right. Yeah. And when they say like, I I literally felt the spirit tonight and it is the thing that they, I feel like they value the most and it's something that keeps them coming back. It's something that they find so much worth in. And yeah, the humor has to be there and the connection and great storytelling. Like that's just, it's fundamental. But when you can invite the spirit into your sacrament meetings, when you help teachers to learn how to do that in their lessons, mm-hmm. I'll never forget my bishop. He said, number one priority is you invite the spirit into every meeting. If you are giving a lesson, you must invite the spirit. If you are doing a meeting, invite the spirit. Mm-hmm. The spirit, I think, is key. I, the spirit is how 
we become converted. It is the thing that we connect to. It is the thing that fills our mind, that fills our heart. And I think we need more of it. Yeah. And the kids need it. Yeah. The kids want it. And when you can do that so well, when you invite and create that kind of an environment and situation where every Sunday when they're at church, they're feeling the spirit of our heavenly father, when they're, they're, they're feeling the Holy ghost and that presence and they're prompted to change and to do better or to live differently. Yeah. That's a win. Yeah. Yeah. So is there any specific, cause obviously like, you know, the, the seminary classes or the homes where that's maybe not, they're not feeling as much. I think, you know, obviously those teachers have the intention to, to invite the spirit, but there's anything specific you do is when you go into that fireside or begin to teach to, to really make sure that not only the spirit's invited, but it, it's uh that they're able to connect with it. Yeah. I think vulnerability is huge, mm. huge. When you get up there and you're presenting or you're speaking or even, you know, you're interviewing somebody quicker, you can get to vulnerability, the quicker you can get to saying, I'm like you, I have experienced what you're experiencing. I struggle. I'm not perfect. Let me tell you a time where I messed up. Mm. Let me tell you about an experience that was super hard for me and my family. Let me tell you a time where I was completely lost. When you start there, you create relatability. A relatability, when you have relatability, that obviously creates connection. Yeah. I think it's a great foundation to inviting the spirit to be there. People have found through that, I think, a sense of, I think that also creates a sense of conversation in our meetings. That creates a sense of, you know what, he was honest and he was he put himself out there or she, she was really, you know, took a risk. I'm going to take a risk. And when you find people doing that, I don't know, it just creates better meanings. It creates yeah. better conversation. It creates better interviews. It creates, again, a deeper connection where the spirit can enter the room. Yeah. That, that's, I think the key is you have, there are elements, I believe in creating an environment where the spirit can exist. Mm-hmm. We talk about standing in holy places and doing holy things. And those are environments where the spirit can exist. And so creating that I think is, is compelling. I also would advocate for the power of good questions, Hmm. not just simply like a good question in like, why should we keep the commandments? Right. Or, you know, why is keeping the the Sabbath a a holy thing important? Like questions of things like a, a situation where, you know, last Tuesday, my best friend, told me they struggle with homosexuality. Hmm. What would you do if you were approached in that same situation? Or my uh, daughter's been bullied for the last three years. And she came to me and said, I'm, I'm struggling with uh, suicidal thoughts. Or I'm struggling with anxiety. And I don't know what to do as a dad. And I'd love to know what you would recommend to help. Like th- those types yeah. of questions where it's like, it almost stirs the pot, but it creates this sense of, of support and help. And again, I think it's, it creates an environment where the spirit can come in and inspire and bring to remembrance specific things for different people that helps to create a greater good. Yeah. And I think, you, you know, you first mentioned vulnerability. I think vulnerability is the, the thing that's, that's threaded throughout that. When you take vulnerability and attach it to a question, you know, when you talk about, you know, your, your friend experiencing the homosexuality like that there's some vulnerability in there, right? Yeah. Like that's a, we're, we're talking real here. We're raw a little bit. And yeah. uh, what, what do you think about that? Like what comes to mind? Right. Yeah. And that stimulates a lot. And and I think the, the trend I see that, you know, we're all trying and, and doing our best with, especially when it comes to youth, but we, 
instead of focusing on the vulnerability, we try and instead focus on the idealism. Like, let's talk about what a great missionary looks like. And here's some three things that you should do, you know, to prepare for your mission or, you know, because we want to sort of, hey, look at the ideal. Let's make sure we're all trying to get the ideal. And the reality is we were born to aim for the ideal. Like we don't need individuals to tell us to aim for the ideal, but we're so much battling with identity and worth, right? That's right. That, and to get there, to begin at that level, it starts with that vulnerability and getting there with some questions, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And, and again, it creates relatability because nobody's perfect and yeah. we all fail our way to success. Yeah. And, and so when you can talk about the failures and you create an environment where that's okay, that's how we become more successful. Yeah. successful. That's yeah. How we and and more I think going back to questions, I think, you know, a lot of those questions that you, you modeled there, there's not like a solid answer for any of those questions, right? right. There might be some good advice, some perspective to consider, but by asking questions that don't have a clear right answer that gives the youth permission to sort of wrestle with it and say, well, I think this, and then somebody will say, I think this, and nobody's wrong, right? We're just talking. Yeah. Yeah. And you create dialogue. We need more dialogue in our lessons. We need more dialogue in our sacrament meetings. We need more conversational pieces that are approached in a way to make us all better, to help us to grow, to come closer to Christ. That's what it's all about. And again, we fail our way to success. So why not create an opportunity where we can talk about those failures? Yeah. And just the, that term dialogue, like I love the, a lot of that dialogue isn't necessarily what you hear in, in the room, like it, just dialogue in, in your own mind of individuals sort of talking it out with themselves. Like, oh, that's an interesting perspective, right? Because obviously you're not going to have hands raised in sacrament meeting, but there's still a lot of dialogue that's right. in, in minds happening That's right. other than, oh, I know, okay, they're going to say this principle and then it's going to lead to that. And then I know what's coming next. Like yeah. that's not dialogue, but yeah. really getting people to consider some of these things. And there's something to be said, like never be predictable, right? Like some of the best teachers, they were just, they were so good at never being predictable. And they created that situation where through that, through those great questions, through being vulnerable, again, going back to the principle we talked about before, they got to the part about you. Yeah. And they did it in a way that you just, you bought into the lesson. You were there, you were engaged, you were a part of that. And so if you're a teacher uh, or even a, a bishop or you're a relief set, whatever, and you're running a meeting, remember that everybody's asking the question, let me know when it gets to the part about me. Yeah. And if you can think that way and try to build your meetings, your lessons, your ward, your culture off of that uh, and focus on that, I, the, the, the more... Uh, relevant and significant those meetings will be. Yeah. And, and uh, the old sales tactic, I remember old sales training, like everybody's favorite radio station is uh, WIFM or something. What's in it for me? Like, like yeah, And really, it's true. It's just it's, a natural, again, it's not about pride or people are too stuck on themselves or egotistical, but everybody in, in every interaction of our life, we're always thinking, so how does this connect with me? Like, where do I come in? Yes. Right. And there's yes. so much of that in the gospel, in Absolutely. the plan of salvation, in the doctrine. Yes. Yes. So bring people to that by getting, starting with vulnerability, by, you know, worth and identity and those things uh, goes a long way. Absolutely. Right? Cool. hundred uh, percent. Anything else that, as far as, uh, you know, be our, our coach here with, with millennials, anything else we should consider? All right. So you're now Bishop Pulver of the YSA first ward. And, uh, I mean, where do you begin with these, with these millennials to talk about like they're the strange breed, even though I'm one of them, but, uh, where do you begin with them? I think again, it goes back to, you know, becoming a mentor, not just the, the young men's president or not just the second counselor connection, getting to the part about them, asking them. I think if, if you're in that situation, status interviews, what do you want out of this? What are you needing? What are you looking for? Yeah. And then be extremely good at communicating potential and worth for them. 
if you recognize them, and again, you communicate the opportunity and possibilities of what could be for them in their Mm -hmm. life, and you're that person, then you become the advocate, not just the developer. I'll never forget Rob Terry. Rob Terry was Priest Quorum advisor, and I was learning how to play the drums. Rob Terry was a drummer. Oh, wow. And he found out that I loved that. Rob Terry was the person that helped me pick out my very first drum set. He, he searched through the classifieds. We looked through the newspapers. He told me the good brands, the ones to avoid, the ones to look out for. He just took interest in the things that mattered to me. Yeah. And I think it's just critical. Like, do you know what they love? And then do you plan things around that? Do you take interest in the things that they, that they want to do? And again, I think sometimes we get caught up in that development world of, well, I want to grow you. I want you to be better. I want you to do this. We need you to get you, we need to get you here. We need to pass off this recommendation or we need to get you this award or, you know, sometimes the older things in the youth programs that we had to where I think they just need a place to connect. They need a place where they go. I like myself best because I'm with you. Yeah. And that's what opens the door for influence. That's what opens the door for you to be able to then talk about the hard things. Yeah. That's what opens the door for when they're struggling, they come to you. Why? Because you went to them. It matters. It just matters. And simply it's just taking interest and the things that they love and not just saying, oh, that's really cool. But but figuring out how to build upon that. Like if you have a a, a kid that loves swimming, like take the young men's group to one of the swim meets, Mm -hmm. plan a swimming activity, like take interest in the things that they love and try to build a program around that, that cultivates them and gives them opportunities to be a part of that while associated with you. Yeah. And it makes me think of just a recent experience I had with uh, one of my priests is, um, and I think if a youth leader is out there and you're not sure where to start with this, start with uh, the phone because there's so many, so much discussion online with teachers groups and things saying, oh, how do you handle phones in the class? Like, you know, well, we have this basket and everybody has put phones in the basket and right. And this phone is like this enemy of all adults. Like I got to get this phone, you know, and you forbid the phone. Right. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, I'm sitting in preschool and I noticed there's a priest next to me and he keeps looking at his phone. Right. And of course I, I, I could have gone to the like, okay, let's, hey, let's focus here or talk to him after, you know, maybe we should minimize the phone use in the room. But I noticed that he was looking at sports scores on his phone. So after that class was over, I just said, hey, uh, are you following a game? Like what's going on? And he's like, oh, that's my fantasy team. And I'm like, oh, who's your team? It's yeah. like, oh, the Cowboys. Yes. Oh, tell me about the Cowboys, yes. you know? So yes. if yes. you don't know where to start, ask them what they're looking at on their phone or, or, and don't do it in a way as like, you know, hey, you shouldn't be looking at that. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. But say, you know, what game are you playing there? That's right. Is that your favorite game? What are your top five games? Let's go there, right? That's right. And just, just build from there. Now I can, I, you know, he likes the Cowboys. I have all sorts of directions. I can go with the battling for his heart because I know that he likes the Cowboys. Yeah. Right. There's yep. so much attached to that. Yeah. And don't be afraid of the technology. Don't be, I mean, it is the world that we are living in right now. And I think obviously there must be boundaries. There must be standards. Yeah, absolutely. That, I, I'm not saying that, but again, there are ways to use technology in a positive manner that helps us to connect more. Yeah. I, Rob Farrell and I talk about this all the time, you know, with, with young people simply texting, like texting them. If you have conversations through text and ask them how their day was. Ask them, you know, how, how was it hanging out with Susie the other day? How was the dance? And hey, what are you up to today? Mm-hmm. Hey, how are things? Like just opening up that conversation with text, do that for a week with young people and then ask them a harder question. Hey, I'm just, have you ever, like, are you struggling with anything right now? Like in school, is there anybody like, has bullying ever been an issue for you? Or, you know, 
have you ever struggled with pornography? Like hard questions through text. Yeah. And sometimes it's easier for a younger generation to answer those questions through text. Mm. Where in person, face to face, like that could maybe come across yeah. a little awkward. You suddenly or go weird, there, yeah, or yeah. like, why are we having yeah. this conversation? But there's something about again using the technology to do that that then opens up the opportunity to then have a real conversation. Yeah, it gives you the chance to kind of go back and say, "Hey, John, I uh, so I yeah texted you the other day about you know the struggles that you're having at school, and I'd love to just talk about it." Yeah, you know, I'm not saying that technology replaces connection and interpersonal communication and one-on-one like i'm not saying that it's a starting point but it can be a catalyst that leads to that because it is the language that they live and breathe and it is their life like if you don't know what instagram is you should know what instagram is if you don't know what snapchat is you need to know what snapchat is you need to know that language you need to know how that operates because it is a world that they consume and live in and I mean, cyberbullying and that whole world has morphed and changed. And again, people are people. Kids are kids. They are no different than kids 20 years ago. They are the same. We are people, but yeah. the times have changed and we need to stay current with that. We need to be understanding of that and learn how to utilize the world that they're living in to create better connections person to person. And then ultimately, obviously, connections to Christ. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Anything else before we wrap up that we haven't covered that you were want to make sure we covered anything, anything like that? I would say probably again, just the power of real relationships in in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think are some of the things that make it the most beautiful. We always remember and we learn from our research that that people never worked for organizations. People worked for people. Mm. You know, and that you can go back to Christ and talk about why people loved Christ and why we remember Christ because he remembered us. Why do you remember the, the amazing bishops? Because they remembered you. Why do you remember that one Relief Society president that just continued to take time because they built a relationship? And we can't forget that people are people and the intangibles and the vulnerability and the time and the connection and asking the right question and just simply creating moments. Be willing to design a moment where people experience you in the best way possible. And that was a positive moment that changed their life. We just had a, we had a little Christmas party just the other day and we do a hot chocolate night with our ward. And we kind of, it's, it's just a fun moment that Mm -hmm. we design. We do it every year. And our goal in that is to still invite like our friends, our ride and dies, the people that we, you know, naturally maybe connect with at church, but we also invite the people that are maybe new or the people that don't feel like they're a part of the in crowd or that, I don't know, sometimes you find that, right? Where people are a little clicky or they're just, and so we've just made that like that. We want to create a moment for people that we just haven't had the opportunity to connect with. And our focus is not to like hang out with our friends and the people that we see every Sunday or the people that we do stuff outside of church but it's, it's just to literally connect with people and create moments. And this one couple came over and they're brand new in the church. They Sometimes they come, sometimes they don't come. And they're just kind of there. And the best part of the whole night was just focusing on them and getting to know them mm-hmm. and getting to the part about them mm-hmm. and just loving them and making sure they felt comfortable and introducing them to other people and just building a relationship. And the husband of the couple texted me the other day and he said, the night, he said that coming over to the hot chocolate party was the best thing that we've had so far in the ward. Oh, wow. And we met more people tonight than we've ever met. 
And it was just a moment. It was a little moment that we just designed. And in doing so, again, everybody needs a friend. Everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be heard. Everybody wants to be understood. So be a Mr. Jensen. See the opportunities, create the opportunities. And I, I don't know, I just think we create a better culture. We create a better ward, a church, a stake, and a family. Yeah. So last question I have uh, is, as you think back in your time leading both and maybe in official callings or on, on the stage as you go around uh, speaking, how has leading made you a better disciple of Jesus Christ? Uh, leading has humbled me to the ground. Leading has, I, it is so hard. If you are in a leadership position, I've been in those positions, it is so hard. And through that, those humbling processes, through those trials, that's what has uh, helped me find Christ more in my life. It is through those experiences where I, I realized how foolish I was or how prideful I was or what a wrong decision that was at that right time. And it's in those moments where the spirit of Heavenly Father's come in and said, no, you need to do better at this or it's okay. It's going to be okay. You can do better tomorrow. You get the, you get the chance again next week. So yeah, the humbling part that again, Ether 12, 27, where my weaknesses have 100% become strengths. And so much of that's come through those leadership opportunities. That concludes my interview with Clint Pulver. So inspiring. I appreciate him taking the time to come to uh, my home studio here. You know, it's really just a bedroom with a table in it, but it feels like a studio to me. Uh, he, he's so gracious in sharing these perspectives, and I hope it inspired you. This would be one maybe to listen to uh, a couple times, but what I would ask is that you consider somebody who you could send this to, who you can share it with. Just drop the link in an email and send it their way, or maybe it's one that you listen to as a ward council or as a elders quorum presidency and say, hey, listen to this episode. We're going to talk about it the next time we meet and uh, break it down. And these are this is how you apply some of these principles. They're fun to listen to. They're inspiring and energizing to hear, but we have to apply them in our leadership to really see a difference and to make this effort all worth it. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 and join the core leader community today. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.